Good evening and very warm welcome to the Oxford Martin School. Thank you for coming out on this uh, particularly rainy evening. Uh, I think you all in for a treat. For those of you that have just started at Oxford and this is your first term, a particularly warm welcome. Uh, the Oxford Martin School is an interdisciplinary group uh, which focuses on the big challenges of the future and you'll find a very, very wide range of events going on here um, on the website. Uh, I was the founding director of the school in 2006. I came to Oxford, uh, Ian Golden, I'm now the professor of globalization. And one of the enormous pleasures I had uh, was being able to put people together to create uh, very exciting teams. And so I was absolutely delighted in 2012 to be able to recruit Carl Frey, fresh out of his uh, doctorate in Berlin, uh, to come and work on a team we put together on technology and employment, the intersection of technological and economic change, working with Michael Osborne, uh, who was fresh out of his doctorate in the engineering department here. Uh, as you know, the rest is a short history, uh, and they have done absolutely fantastic work in 2013, very soon after Carl arrived here and started working with Michael. They produced a paper uh, which really changed the way that people think about this area. Uh, it's a sign of its success that it has been a source of much controversy uh, and contradiction uh, because it really defined that space uh, and many other people have subsequently done work uh, in that area. But Carl's remained at the head of it. I stepped down in 2016 and I'm delighted to see that Sir Charles Godfrey, the current director of the school, is in the back. He has to leave early, which is why he's not uh, up here doing what, uh, what I'm doing. Uh, Carl has uh, gone on to win a number of grants after that. Uh, we've been very fortunate uh, in this work program to benefit from funding from Citibank. Uh, and in fact, they are just renewing that again. So we're absolutely delighted to be able to keep drilling down and pursuing uh, this vital uh, research agenda. Will we have jobs in the future? What will the jobs be? Where will they be? Uh, and what are the implications in terms of inequality, uh, wages, and so on? The Technology Trap is a magnificent book. Um, it's for sale afterwards at a massively discounted price of 15 pounds. If you go down the road, you'll have to buy it for 24. Uh, so buy it here, and there will also be a drinks reception uh, to which all of you are invited uh, at six o'clock. So I'm delighted to welcome Carl uh, and for him to launch his new book, The Technology Trap, Capital, Labor, and Power in the Age of Automation. Thank you, Ian. It's such a pleasure to be back here. Uh, to my favorite place, the fa my favorite lecture hall in the world, not just because I only have to take the elevator one floor down in order to get here, uh, but also because it's the place where everything actually started back in 2012, when Ian, Mike and I got together and began to discussing what the future of uh, work might actually look like, what, how the um, division of labor is evolving as artificial intelligence is progressing. Um, and as Ian mentioned, it's been a source of a bit of controversy. Hopefully, we'll be able to add to a bit more to that controversy um, today. Um, but the theme of the book is very much sort of trying to shed some light on 
the times we're living in through the lens of history. Because what we estimated back in 2012 is that roughly 47% of jobs are at high risk of being automated. Um, and the question that we've gotten consistently since then is, is this time different somehow? Because we've been through periods of rapid technological progress um, in the past. Um, and I found it quite extraordinary when researching this book how much technology has progressed over the past two centuries, but how little the debate surrounding its effects has actually progressed. We are now living through an era of automation anxiety again, very similar to what we saw in the 1960s, in the 1930s, in the 1830s, and, and so on. And it feels quite natural somehow that people shouldn't feel that enthusiastic about the tornado that is coming for the office. Um, and I was actually quite struck to see that a majority of Americans this is from a recent Pew Research survey. A majority of Americans now think that there should be restrictions on the number of machines that businesses should be allowed to implement in order to increase productivity growth. Um, and this is not that puzzling through the rents of recent automation um, debates. But it is quite puzzling if we look at the long-run trajectories of mechanization and growth. I studied economic history as an undergrad. One of the first slides you encounter when you studied economic history is this one, right? It shows that economic growth was roughly stagnant for millennia, a very long time, and took off in extraordinary fashion around 1800. What happens around 1800 is not that you know technology for the first time uh, arrived, so there was a lot of important inventions before then, like the barometer, the telescope, uh, the horseshoe, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of important inventions happening. But for the very first time, technology translates into higher incomes for the wider population. And the reason for that must be the mechanized factory, which allowed us to produce more with fewer people. Before 1800, there were few machines that relieved workers of a lot of burdens in their daily jobs. And as a result of the steady flow of labor-saving technologies that have been adopted since then, we are now able to produce roughly 40 times more in Britain than we were at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And people's income as a result of that is roughly 40 times higher adjusted for inflation. Now, you might say that that does, comparison doesn't make any sense because the consumer basket at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution was very different than the consumer basket that you can buy with your incomes today. All of these things didn't even exist. Ordinary people at the time could only look at the lives of the wealthy in envy who had servants to do the most tedious things for them. Um, today, most of us, or all of us here in this room, have access to the electric servant in terms of dishwashers, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, and so on, that relieves us of a lot of tedious work. Not to mention other inventions like the automobile and anti antibiotics. And if that wasn't enough evidence of progress, consider the fact that producing 
those goods and earning those higher incomes have become so much more comfortable as well. Uh, not so long ago, a significant share of the population worked in coal mines. Cave-ins and explosions were part of everyday working life. Lung disease often part of the work package. Today, most of us work in air-conditioned offices. The worst thing that happened here at the Martin School in recent memory was when the coffee machine broke down. And I think that you know, puts things in perspective. And if we only look at the sectoral changes in the composition of the workforce, that also understates the transformation that is taking place. So if you take the job of a farm laborer in 1900, that person would have walked the fields with nothing more than animal power. He would, or she, would be exposed to hazardous weather conditions, swarms of insects, all sorts of unpleasant things. Today, a farm laborer in the industrial West usually sits in his or her tractor and can listen to the music of his or her choice. So it's quite extraordinary what the leap forward that has happened over the past 200 years. Uh, the point of the book is that that leap forward is only half of the story. What did the people actually say when the mechanized factory arrived? Well, I think there is no doubt that the Industrial Revolution laid the foundations for modern growth and much of the increases in uh, growth and well-being that has taken place. But the Industrial Revolution itself was polarizing. So, uh, for example, Benjamin Disraeli, before he became Prime Minister of Britain, wrote a novel called Coningsby, in which one character remarks that, I see cities, people with machines. Certainly, Manchester must be the most wonderful place of modern times. The very same year, Frederick Engels published his Conditions of the Working Classes, which was written during a stay in precisely Manchester. And Engels had a very different take of what was happening. He argued that mechanization only serves to downgrade people, as it puts them in the repetitive motions of machinery, which can be deemed unnatural. And, and he also argued that it took over a lot of people's jobs, reduced their wages and, and incomes to subsistence, and led to the immiseration um, of the working class. Now, we know. Uh, from history that he was wrong about the future, but he was actually fairly on target about the period he lived through, because what he witnessed was what the economic historian Bob Allen has called Engels' powers. The seven decades of the classical period of the Industrial Revolution, where the British economy first took off, but very little happened to the wages of ordinary people. Now, the wage data for this period of time isn't great, but if you look at supplementary sources like data on consumption um, or uh, biological indicators such as height, they paint a similar picture. The courts born in 1750 were actually taller than the courts born in 1850, suggesting that people's nutrition was adversely impacted as well as their incomes diminished. And at the heart of the industrialization process was uh, the replacement of middle-income workers. So artists and craftsmen who would do sort of every step in the production process um, themselves, often in their home, surrounded by their wives and children, their incomes came under pressure as the mechanized factory arrived. And what the factory did is that it took 
advantage of uh, sheep labor, child labor in particular. And it's uh, a really noted fact that the early spinning machines of the Industrial Revolution were specifically designed to be tended by children. Many factory owners realized that to sap resistance to mechanization, they were uh, better off by trying to innovate in such ways as to get around that. And children often didn't have much bargaining power. Uh, they only got food and lodging. And they were easy to enforce the factory discipline upon. They were the robots of the Industrial Revolution, if you like. Um, now, a key question to economists and economic historians um, has been, why would people voluntarily have participated in the industrialization process if it reduced their utility? Well, the simple answer is that they didn't. They expressed their thoughts and feelings in verse, like the one you can see above. They petitioned to parliament to block the introduction on machinery on several occasions, and they rioted against the mechanist factory. And all the Luddites achieved was getting the British government to deploy an even larger army against them. The army that Wellington took against Napoleon in the Peninsula War of 1808 was actually smaller than the army that was sent out against the Luddites. And I think it's important to remember that while much public commentary focused on the Luddite riots in particular, there was a long wave of machinery riots that swept across Britain and even Europe. And all of them didn't have to do with the appalling working conditions of the factory. You saw similar riots happening against agriculture machines as well. And um, I think that the economic historian Eric Hobsbawm summarized it nicely when he said that what began with the construction of the first factories and, and ended with the construction of the railroads also ended with the publication of the Communist Manifesto. A lot of these revolutionary technologies that became eventually the engines of growth also created a lot of political revolutionaries along the way. Now, the point of the book is not to predict a socialist revolution, um, but I think it is noteworthy that levels of income inequality have been increasing over the past three decades or so, and they are approaching levels not seen since the first industrial revolution. And there are many factors that are shaping the in, uh, income distribution. There's no question about that. Uh, but Mechanization or automation is definitely not one of them. And clearly, it's not driven by textile machinery or steam engines this time around. The technology is very different. Uh, but it, if it's anything having even more pervasive impacts on the labor market. And as you can see, this process has been going on for some time. The first electronic computer was invented at the University of Pennsylvania in 19. 47 or 46, sorry. Um, but it consisted of roughly 18,000 vacuum tubes. It weighed 30 tons. And as a result of that, it didn't have much impact on the labor market. It took the invention of the microprocessor uh, and later on the invention of the
the personal computer for businesses to realize that A, they could restructure supply, supply chains in ways that allow them to take advantage of cheap labor in emerging um, economies like China. And secondly, they could, that they could automate routine, repetitive tasks on mass scale. And the consequence of that is best shown by this figure, where you see that as productivity growth grows for most of the 20th century, wages are growing in tandem. So early machinery is creating a lot of demand for operators whose skills are augmented by the machinery and the technology complements them in a happy way. And that's quite different from robotics who are replacing those sorts of workers in production. And as a result of that, you're seeing a growing gap between wages and productivity growth. Now, for all the talk of, the, of rising inequality, I think the greatest tragedy is actually that certain groups in the labor market have been left worse off in absolute terms. So if you look at the wages of men with no more than a high school degree, they have actually been falling for prime-age men with no more than a high school degree for four decades now. So it's not just a question of, uh, of the labor market becoming more equal. Opportunity is diminishing very rapidly for people who used to take on jobs in factories before robots were being adopted on wider scale. Now, one of my favorite lines from the book is that if you put one hand in the freezer and the other in the stove, you should be feeling quite comfortable on average, but we know from experience that that is not the case. And I think the same can be said about the US labor market. Right? Unemployment is trending around 3.6%, right? It's looking very healthy on the surface, and if you go to certain places like you know, most coastal cities, it's also doing really well. But people in the Rust Belt in particular, in cities that specialized in manufacturing industry, which have suffered from deindustrialization caused by offshoring and automation, are not doing so well. You can see, if you look at labor force participation rates among uh, prime-age men again, you can see that joblessness is on the rise, and it's especially in these places. There are more robots in Michigan alone, for example, than the entire American West. And that is where most of its problems are. And, and we know from a great body of research that joblessness also comes with a lot of bad social consequences. Economists tend to think that the purpose of production is consumption, but we actually know from a very big body of research that that's not true. People attach a lot of meaning to the work. One of the most consistent findings across countries, across different periods of time, is that people who work are happier than those who don't. And if you look at the communities where jobs have uh, dried up, you see that marriage rates are declining, more children are growing up in single-parent households, crime is on the rise, health outcomes are worsening, suicide and alcohol and substance abuse is on the rise, um, and it is not a very healthy development. 
And if you want to understand why key, three key swing states, being Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, who had opted for the Democratic candidate in every election since 1992, all of uh, the sudden uh, ended up voting in President Trump in 2016, Automation is one of the prime reasons, and this is uh, joint research with Shin Shishen and Tor Berger showing that. And one of the key points is that we have seen nothing yet. We've already seen a backlash against globalization, but automation has so far primarily been confined to routine rule-based activities. Uh, but the potential scope of ma what machines can do is expanding very rapidly. Uh, due to recent advances in machine learning and artificial intelligence in particular, machines are now increasingly incapable of inferring the rules of the game themselves. They can tap into the digital trails that we leave behind us when we interact online. They can learn through trial and error. And as a result of that, they are able to perform tasks that were unconceivable to automate a few years ago like driving a truck, diagnosing a disease, translation work, uh, document review, so on and so forth. Um, and what all of these approaches have in common is that they are driven by increasingly large data sets that allows machines to predict what a human would have done in any given situation. So for example, if you want to program a car, to drive in the city of Oxford, it's almost impossible to foresee every given situation that the vehicle might encounter. Uh, you just can't. Um, but you can actually fill in the blanks by gathering uh, loads of data of people driving and then trying to predict what a human driver would have done in that given situation. Uh, now, I'm simplifying a bit, but it's broadly this pattern that is driving everything we're seeing in uh, technology um, today. And some of you might say, well, I used Google Translate yesterday, it's not perfect, and autonomous vehicles, where are they? But I think it's important to remember that every uh, technological revolution started with imperfect technology. The early steam engines, for example, were mainly used to drain coal mines, yet they were the ones that eventually became the prime movers of the Industrial Revolution and powered economic growth for a very long time. And I think that we are actually very much underestimating the potential impacts that AI could have on labor markets. The first reason being that machines don't have to be perfect in order to outperform us, because we certainly are not. So this is a study of Israeli judges and their decision-making during the day. And you can see that early in the morning, after we had a morning snack, insulin levels are high, and we make a very high share, uh, share of favorable decisions. That then tends to drop off during the morning, bumps up after breakfast again, and the same after lunch. And we are very much shaped by you know, what we eat, how much we sleep. Um, some of us are bad temper in certain situations. So machines are actually have a comparative advantage in a wide range of tasks just because of that. The second point is that for 
automation to happen, machinery doesn't necessarily have to replicate every motion that the human does in his or her job. So we didn't automate away the jobs of lamplighters, for example, by building robots capable of climbing lampposts. We didn't automate away the jobs of laundresses by building robots that could walk out of the home, chop down trees, carry woods and piles of water into the home, then heat the water on the stove and then perform the motions of hand washing, right? We did that by inventing the electric washing machine that does an entirely different set of motions. And because engineers are very good at finding these clever ways of restructuring tasks to make them automatable, potential scope of automation is much greater than many people um, actually think. Nonetheless, there are certain uh, uh, domains in which uh, human workers still hold a comparative advantage, and this is joint research with Mike Osborne here at the Martin School that goes back to 2013. Um, and what we did is we tried to sort of think about in which domains machines still perform very poorly, where there have been very re uh, little progress in, uh, in recent years. And uh, I think one example that illustrates this quite well is Turing test competitions, right, where chatbots try to convince human judges of them being human. Um, and a lot of pundits argued, I think it was about three years ago now, that there was a big breakthrough then, because one chatbot had managed to convince 30% of human judges of it being a person. But it did so by pretending to be a 13-year-old orphan Russian boy speaking English as his second language with no understanding of English culture. And if you think about the variety of much more complex social interactions that you do in your daily jobs, we try to persuade people that you write, you negotiate uh, certain things, you try to motivate your colleagues, it's almost inconceivable that we will have um, an algorithm that's able to perform that in the foreseeable future. And I think the same is true of creativity, and there's a big uh, debate in the machine learning community, admittedly, um, uh, with regard to whether algorithms can be uh, creative. But I think people who, who think that they can be or think that they are uh, tend to conflate novelty and creativity. So I could draw something here on the wall and call myself an artist, but you know, a few of you would be likely to buy my painting. Um, and the tricky part here is not to generate something that is novel, it's generating something that's novel and makes sense. So if you think about, for example, uh, software writing classical music, you can certainly take your favorite symphonies, and maybe they're all Mozart, and say that these are the best symphonies that have ever been written, and then, you know, allow the algorithm to come up with some recombination of that. Um, and that's very likely to sound quite similar to Mozart. But you're not going to arrive at Stravinsky or Schoenberg by doing that, and I think one of the reasons for that is that when humans are creative, we draw upon data and experience from all walks of life, sometimes even a dream. And in many cases, when tasks create, uh, require creativity, much of your data is likely to be outside the training data set. 
The last bottleneck is maybe the least intuitive one. It relates to the perception and manipulation of irregular objects. So sort of very easy things for us, distinguishing between a piece of rubbish that's on the floor uh, or a really important document, uh, straightforward for most of us to do, not actually so easy to explain. And similar tasks like, you know, distinguishing between a pot that is dirty and holds, uh, that is dirty and a pot that holds a plant, also quite intuitive to us, not so um, easy to automate. So unfortunately, I think um, the job of the cleaner is one of the last we are likely to see disappearing. Um, that being said, there are a lot of jobs that are not very intensive in tasks that require creativity and complex social interactions. Um, and if, in fact, the majority of jobs in transportation, logistics, retail, construction, uh, don't. Um, and as a result of that, the potential scope of automation is quite significant. So you can think about 3.5 million cashiers that are employed in the US today. If you go into an Amazon Go store, you won't see a single one. There's another 3.5 million truck, taxi, and bus drivers when autonomous vehicles arrive. All of them are likely to be exposed to uh, those technological developments. And there's another 2.2 million people in the US still working in call centers, just to name a few examples. Um, and when we published this study uh, a few years ago now, we actually also published a list, very detailed list, of 702 occupations and their relative exposure to automation. And you can imagine that a lot of people pick it up on some of those and said, well, this is silly. It doesn't make sense, does it, right? And my, my friend Ken Cookier at The Economist used to tease us because we found that fashion models are highly exposed to automation. Um, these fashion models here actually don't exist. They've been generated through generative adversarial networks using thousands of pictures, and they're already being used by companies like Dior. Um, and I think if we only look at the potential scope of automation, we actually also miss a lot of stuff because we're only looking at the first order effects, but there are a lot of, of second and third order effects as well that are reshaping the economy. So in the early days of electrification, for example, all we did was replacing the steam engine with an electric motor at the as the central power source of the factory. And that didn't have much of an impact on productivity growth, right? Because everything else remained intact. All of these shafts and counter shafts in the factory were still there. But it took a while for engineers to figure out, that, well, actually what you can do, you can place an electric motor on every single machine. And you can then sequence them in the natural flow of production. And that is the approach that gave rise to mass production. It is what allowed Henry Ford to produce the T model at a sufficiently low price for it to become the people's vehicle. And the same approach to doing things spread gradually across industries. And that was when the main effects on the economy and productivity growth was felt. If you look at some of the early horse carriages, um, or the early automobiles, I should say. 
uh, they actually almost look like a horse carriage, right? So all you've done is essentially replacing the horse with an internal combustion engine as the prime mover of your vehicle. Uh, and it took a while for us to figure out that, well, first of all, we can redesign the entire car. It doesn't have to look like a horse carriage. And we then realized that we need to build a lot of gasoline stations and we need to build you know, a lot of shops around the roads, which gave rise to road commerce and more tourists that created millions of jobs. It took a while for us to figure out that we need to build uh, interstate highways, which gave rise to the trucking industry and changed distribution models. And it took a while for people to figure out that they actually don't have to live in congested cities any longer. They can live in the suburbs and commute into work. So the automobile from its early days just replaced the horse, but over a longer period of time, it reshaped the structure of the entire economy. And I think we can expect the same from artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles. I'm an economist, I'm not a futurist, so I will do this very briefly. But there are certain things that I think we can actually infer when autonomous vehicles emerge. So first of all, you're very unlikely to need a lot of parking space in cities or on the sidewalks. So you can make roads slimmer and you can build where parking spaces exist because the cars are actually just going to circulate, uh, circulate out um, of the cities. And you can imagine that if everybody has their own automated chauffeur, uh, they're also more likely to live further away from work and do some of the work in the cars on the way home. So density is maybe not going to be that much um, uh, of an issue in city centers any longer as a result of that. And lastly, the car itself is clearly going to look very different, right? It may not look as this 1950s version with the family playing board games. You may have a Netflix subscription instead, or the car may have a minibar and that will be the most expensive part of your trip. Uh, but what is clear is that it has the potential to change a lot uh, in terms of how we live and work, provided that we let it do that. Uh, because I think that the um, economist Leontief was onto something when he suggested that what happened on the farms, uh, if, if, if horses could have joined the Democratic Party and voted, what happened on the farms might have turned out differently. They could have used their political clout, their political voice, to bring the spread of the tractor to uh, a halt. And we're already seeing some examples of that. So this is truck drivers who went on strike in the state of Missouri the other week, demanding legislation to block the introduction of autonomous trucks as they are getting more pervasive. This is dock workers who went on strike in Los Angeles Harbor a couple of months ago, uh, fearing autonomous cargo trucks. Now they did misunderstand our paper slightly. It's not, a, it's not a conspiracy. We're not planning to automate these 47% of the jobs. But what this shows is that the societal response to automation is to some extent already taking place. When I began to write the book a couple of years ago, robot taxes wasn't on anybody's radar. Now it's being discussed on both sides of the Atlantic. Bill de Blasio proposed a robot tax the other week, and worker councils 
and would essentially decide whether businesses should be allowed to automate or not and whether it's essentially for the company. So I think we're seeing to some extent some of the backlash against automation already happening. Now the point is not that there won't be jobs in the future. I'm absolutely certain that they will be. And if you go back to 1900, right, and you ask somebody or your grandmother or your great-grandfather, uh, uh, what do you think will be the jobs of the early 20th century? They wouldn't have said, well, my daughter is most certainly going to be a software engineer and my son is going to be a hot yoga teacher. Um, that would have been very unlikely. And I think in a similar fashion, we are very much sort of struggling to predict the jobs that um, will emerge in the future. But we can at least now cast some of the things that are happening uh, in the labor market uh, right now. And LinkedIn did a little survey on their platform um, a while ago uh, looking at new and emerging jobs. And among those, you can find RS developers and data scientists and social media interns and Zumba instructors. And you can also find big data architects, digital marketing specialists, and the Beachbody coach. Uh, and what is the point with this? Well, I think this actually reflects a broader pattern that we've seen in the labor market over the past couple of decades, where you see that new jobs are emerging in very skilled industries that are highly clustered. And those people um, earning higher wages are demanding a lot of in-person type of services that are hard to automate. And you can see this even in official statistics now. So sommelier, for example, is a job that's existed for a long time. It's only very, very recently became its own job title because we tend to demand more of them as we grow wealthier. Um, this is some joint work done with Thor Berger a couple of years ago. And what it shows is that there's been a shift in where these new jobs are actually emerging. So before the computer revolution of the 1980s, new jobs were actually recently dispersed across space. Since then, and you can also see in the statistics that more of these job titles directly relate to computer technologies, they have become increasingly clustered in skilled cities. And what happens when you create one new tech job in a city uh, like London or Oxford, is that that person goes out in the local economy, goes to the hairdresser, goes grocery shopping, uh, uses, uses the transportation system and so on and so forth. And that creates on average five new jobs in the local non-traded service economy. Um, and as a consequence of that, economic activity has become much more clustered. Uh, some of you may remember this sort of debate in the end of the 1990s where people predicted the end of the office and Tom Friedman famously wrote his book, The World is Flat. But since that, the opposite has actually happened. Economic activity has become increasingly clustered in these skilled cities. Um, and the flip side of that is that where robot technologies or automation technologies have been adopted, the exact opposite has happened. So in old manufacturing cities, where jobs have been automated away, the local service economy has taken a hit as well. Um, and as a result of that, we're seeing many of these social problems that I mentioned earlier. Now, so in conclusion, what I think is the key message of this book is that in a way, we have been here before, and in a way, 
resistance to technological change has been the historical norm rather than the exception. And I think, as the great economist Joseph Schumpeter observed, that uh, technological progress also involves creative destruction in employment, meaning that there will be both winners and losers. And if a lot of people see their jobs and incomes under threat, they are likely to opt against it. Um, and one reason that economic growth was actually slow for so long is that workers vehemently resisted any technology that threatened their jobs and incomes, and fearing social unrest, monarchs and governments typically sided with their workers. Um, and I think what we need to do is that we need to make sure that people benefit from these technologies also in the short run to ensure con continued acceptance for them. Because in the end of the day, technological progress isn't a natural force. It requires societal acceptance. And the great difference to the Industrial Revolution this time around is that we're in a much better position to actually manage and shape the outcome. Um, so um, the book concludes with a few policy proposals, which I won't go into here. So if you want to read about those, you actually have to buy the book. It's a great gift for family and friends. So maybe we can open for discussion here. So thanks very much. Very, very fascinating um, short summary of what is an immensely readable uh, and important book. We have about 15 minutes. This is being webcast and videoed, so uh, be aware that if you're asking a question that uh, you might be broadcast live around the world. Uh, and with that, I hope not intimidating uh, comment, who'd like to pose a question to Carl? Can you wait for the microphone, please? Um, thank you. My name is Jan, uh, founder and partner of an investment firm investing in education businesses, uh, in part to address some of these challenges you've pointed out. Um, Carl, if you could uh, wave a magic wand to ensure that as many people as possible benefit from uh, these new technologies, as opposed to being pushed down into um, underemployment or, or low-skilled jobs, um, what would you what what would you like to do? Well, if I answer your question, I'm basically giving away the selling proposition <laughs> of the book, like, but uh, I, I'll give it a go. So I think, uh, unfortunately, there's a tendency to say that we have this really big challenge and we need one big solution to solve it, and that's universal basic income. I think there's a lot of things that can be done which my, may seem minor individually that can make a big uh, difference collectively. Um, and as I mentioned a couple of times during the presentation, I think much actually lies in the economic geography um, of new jobs and the fact that we're seeing this sort of divergence between metropolitan cities, the countryside and old manufacturing industries, and I think that is what's really sort of tearing apart society. Um, so one example which, I, which, I, uh, which is close to my heart because it's close to where I grew up in southern Sweden is the city of Malmö, which had specialized in building ships. And, uh, in the early 1990s, Cox, uh, Cockham's, the uh, shipyard closed down and the city 
was actually doing very poorly for a long time. And its revival came with the construction of the Öresund Bridge to Copenhagen. Um, so all of a sudden, uh, people in Manmer could stay put, live where um, housing is cheap, tap into a booming labor market. Most of them would spend mo uh, 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 their earnings locally where they live, which gave a boost to the local service economy and created a virtuous cycle. And it's actually one of the most dynamic labor markets in Europe now. And uh, so I think a lot can be done by actually connecting uh, declining and expanding re regions. Uh, there's another, I think there's 12 in total policy proposals I got through, so uh, I'll leave the 11 uh, uh, <laughs> remaining ones as the selling proposition. Thank you for that question. Yep. Um, is it there on the left? Let's <coughs> start on the left here. Oh, thanks for a brilliant talk, really enjoyed it. Uh, I was, I, whenever these conversations come up, I think about the artisans who were threatened in the Industrial Revolution uh, with the, the loss of their livelihoods. And yet I would imagine in the room today, and uh, in Oxford particularly, in a very high, uh, highly affluent place generally, there are a lot of people wearing artisan wristwatches and eating artisan chocolate um, in, in something of a uh, rebuttal of the idea that mass-produced goods are best. Uh, do you think that there is some kind of future for uh, things still made by hand or things made uh, in a bespoke way that as people get wealthier uh, and living standards become higher, there, there may be some greater resistance to the idea of mass-produced things or, or ma uh, solutions coming from large data sets as opposed to individual tailored ones. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I think, first of all, it's important to note that it's still a very small part of the overall economy, but it is growing. Um, I think the last part you mentioned is absolutely key, which is that you're saying that as we grow richer, we may demand more of that, and I think that's exactly what's happening. Uh, but that also means it's not going to be a relief to many of the places that are seeing these adverse consequences of automation, because if you're producing a T-shirt that you're selling for 40 euros, you need to be, have some people around that are likely to buy them. And uh, one city that the city of Berlin, reason that the city of Berlin is a very attractive place to live, but uh, is essentially bankrupt, is uh, that uh, you know, to produce many of these wonderful things, you actually need a consumer as well in the long run. Otherwise, it doesn't really pay. Thank you. You've talked about it almost as a process that has happened since the beginning of capitalism and industrialization, the substitution of um, dead capital for live labor. What opportunities does this um, revolution in the way we produce and distribute goods, is it similar to, whether you accept it or not, a Kondratiev? cycle with major structural opportunities for new employment, for new activity, um, particularly with reference to climate change. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's right. I mean, one of the fastest growing occupations today is that one of so, uh, solar uh, panel installers, right? So there is massive opportunity there. And uh, I think von der Leyen announced a new trillion dollar invest 
development uh, initiative uh, in Europe to spur, well, not just job creation, but you know, combat climate change. And I uh, do think that that is a sector that's likely to expand. Uh, that said, though, I mean, many of these new industries don't provide the same sort of broad-based opportunity as the mass production industries of the 20th century did. But they tend to be high-income industries. They support a lot of the incomes of people that provide in-person type of services, so the multiplier is quite high. Um, but broadly speaking, yes, I think that's right. Okay, hi. Thank you for the talk. Uh, so my question is, what, what do you reckon would be the effect of, of automation on the military, such as, for example, I intend to develop and mass-produce Android humanoids. What do you reckon would be the effect on the, let's say, the US military and on fifth generation warf warfare? Well, it's a great question. It's not one I spent much time on, to be honest with you. I think we, wasn't it Alex Levinghouse did a very a good report on that for the OMS um, a couple of years back, and we have some research looking into that. Uh, clearly, there are huge incentives to adopt automation technologies in the military, where the cost of lives is, uh, is very high. Um, and we know from the past that the military has also been a key driver of innovation um, in many sectors. So. I assume the role of the military is quite significant, but it's nothing I've looked into personally. Let's just see a show of hands. All right, no women are asking questions for some reason. There's a lady just there. All right, <laughs> why don't you give us the, the mic chair? Yeah. You have the on your right. <laughs> just there. Yes, thank you. Uh, Carl, thank you uh, for the fascinating talk. Um, I'm 20% into your book on my Kindle. Um, I think technology is the end to the mean, and we are talking about the end, not the mean. Um, we, the human, are responsible for technological progress, and we know and we cannot deny the fact that technology will evolve and it will progress and it will continuously progress. And we're looking at um, the future of technology, which means I haven't got into your policy section yet. Maybe you have made this recommendation. Um, so what type of policy and what could governments do to look at the future and predict the future and prepare uh, the human race to uh, face this technological progress and uh, so that we are not trapped in this uh, technological uh, trap, as you call it? Um, so that's my question. Thank you. Well, that's an easy one. Um, so um, I think one of the key points of the book is actually that you know, technological progress is far from inevitable. And if it was, the Industrial Revolution would have happened a bit earlier in the history of my, mankind. Um, if it was, every country would have adopted the same technologies to the same extent, and every country would be uh, rich as a consequence of that. Uh, but that is not what we see happening over the past 200 years. There's actually been income divergence rather than convergence, um, which um, uh, is a bit of a challenge there. And so I don't uh, think that it's you know, easy to predict future economic outcomes on the basis of what is happening in technology al alone, just because that the existence, mere existence of technology doesn't mean that it's going to be widely adopted. So I think you need to look at different factors and how they 
interact, and technology is one of them. The distribution of political power in society is one. One reason that uh, mechanization was adopted on mass scale in Britain first was that the merchant class that grew wealthier also became more politically influential and they would have nothing that um, jeopardized their incomes and mechanization was deemed essential to British competitiveness in trade. Another is that increasingly integrated markets meant that the political power of the craft skills uh, was significantly eroded because it didn't extend beyond their own city. So you saw this sort of great shift in the balance of political power and that is sort of one of the, the reasons that it uh, first happened in Britain. So. I think we need to you know, look at all of this um, as more of a complex system. We have uh, within INET, or part of the Martin School, a group that is uh, doing great work in that domain, and I would encourage you to, to, to look at their website. Person over there, person over there, and I think that'll be all we have time for. So you articulate on like a hot topic about like attacks on robots, and Something that I concern about that we already see the gap between the frontier of the productivity, the firms on the frontier of the productivity, uh, and the firms that are trying to catch up is increasing. Uh, what do you think about these tax? I mean, are you worried that this kind of tax maybe actually even make it harder for firms that are trying to catch up to the frontier of technology? Um, it would be more expensive, it would be harder for them. And how we could come up with this smart kind of taxation that take uh, to account this problem? Sure, that's a great question. Well, I think, I mean, in a way, you almost answered it yourself, right? Obviously, if you adopt a robot tax, it becomes more expensive to adopt new technologies. So if you're behind the frontier, it gets more expensive to catch up. So uh, uh, there you have it. Um, I mean, I don't really understand why you know, we should single out robots as a source of taxation. I think that's a driver of productivity growth. Things you want to see more of is not the things you want to tax. I think we need to think about taxing capital uh, more broadly. Clearly, if you see the labor share of income falling over four consecutive decades, you would think that, you know, that is going to have certain consequences for public finances, which is uh, being worked uh, on at the Martin School as well, I'm pleased to say. Uh, I think uh, maybe even by your group. Um, <laughs> and um, um, so, so, so clearly that is a very, uh, very great, great concern, and I think we need to rebalance sort of uh, tax rates between capital and labor uh, going forward, also to close, close many of the loopholes, uh, loopholes that currently exist. Great. Last person there. And then Carl will be signing books, and you can also speak to him over drinks, which will be even more pleasant than uh, being in a lecture theater. <laughs> okay. So my question is, is that you said we've gone through... <laughs> We've gone through the cycle of new technologies coming in and people being very scared of it before. So my question is that, what is one lesson that we're able to draw from the past in terms of actually learning how to deal with these fears that we can apply to today? So I think one of the key lessons you see from the first industrial revolution is that the economic ideas matter, right? And people at the time believed that the world was Malthusian, right? Uh, larger incomes would only result in larger populations uh, with no sort of increasing per capita terms. And as a result of that, any redistribution of income was deemed 
uh, counterproductive because it would only grow the population. And Thomas Malthus and David Ricardo and others were very influential in sort of pushing that thought. And they may be partially right about the history, um, but they were clearly not right about the time they were living through. Um, and uh, that led to essentially to the abolishment of the poor laws, which was the only sort of source of relief for people who lost their jobs at the time. And that sort of just exacerbated the social um, unrest. And we actually know better this time around, and we should use that knowledge. Great. Um, for those of you that today is the first day at Oxford, uh, do join us for drinks afterwards and celebrate your arrival. Uh, for those of you that have been here more regularly, know we don't have drinks after every event. Um, so this is uh, a particular treat today. And it's clearly been a treat to hear Carl. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted after having started the group um, seven years ago that it's reached the stage uh, of global resonance and that Carl's produced not only a whole series of, of great papers with his colleagues, but also uh, this book published by Princeton University Press. This is also the only time can be able to buy a book that costs 24 pounds something uh, for 15 pounds brand new. So I encourage you to do that, uh, to socialize and to meet with Carl. And thanks to you all for coming. Thank you.